Hello and welcome to the Aura of Greatness, episode 1.5, Che, Chichina, Columbia, and the Cold War. Welcome back. Last time we covered Che's solo journey through Argentina. This time we will discuss his first love, his first stop on his journey, and take our first glimpse into the world outside Argentina. In episode 1.2, Alta Gracia, I mentioned that the Guevara family had become friends with the Gonzalez Aguilar family. The Gonzalez Aguilar family had been one of the prominent families that had fled Spain for Argentina during the Spanish Civil War. Guevara Lynch had been quick to befriend all of the fleeing Spaniards, but the Guevaras had become particularly close to the Gonzalez Aguilars through the friendship of both families' children. During Che's fourth year in medical school, Carmen Gonzalez Aguilar was to be married. The entire Guevara family was invited to the wedding. It was at this wedding that Che would meet his first lady love. Her name was Maria del Carmen Ferreira, though her friends called her Chichina. Chichina was the beautiful 16-year-old daughter of one of Cordoba's oldest and wealthiest families. Okay, technically the two had first met while they were both living in Cordoba, but that had been several years ago and was before Chichina had, shall we say, blossomed and become highly desirable to any post-adolescent boy. Che's friend, Pepe Aguilar, reports that when Che first glimpsed Chichina that night, it was like he had been hit by a lightning bolt. Chichina would later describe the immediate attraction as mutual. Throughout the entirety of his life, Che will never have a problem making an impression on any party. Che will always remain quick-witted, and his unusual fashion sense combined with his signature messiness always made him stand out in the crowd. Chichina was from a family and social station that called for sophistication to the highest degree. Che's family could be described as having descended from the blue bloods of Argentina, but they had most certainly fallen to the level of upper middle class. The Guevara de las Cernas were certainly still privileged, but they were nowhere near the level of the Ferreras. Celia, Che's mother, had also raised her children to shun sophistication for personal expression, which made the two families as different as could be. Che's odd fashion sense and combative wit would cause friction with Chichina's family later on in their relationship, but in the beginning, it was charming. The Ferreira family owned limestone quarries and the then biggest lime factory in Argentina. The lime factory was located about 15 miles west of Cordoba in Malagueno. Malagueno was a huge 2,000 hectare spread. It included two polo fields, held stables for Arabian horses, and had a village of people who worked at the mine quarry. The family's most dearly held possession was Palacio Ferreira. The palace was built between 1912 and 1916 by French architect Ernest Sanson. It is a French chalet built in the Beaux Arts style. Chichina's grandmother lived in Palacio Ferreira. Chichina and her family would visit often, but they spent most of their time in their own large mansion in Cordoba or at the Malagueno estate. Palacio Ferreira still stands today, but it was expropriated by the Cordoba governor in 2005 and in 2007 became the Evita Vine Arts Museum named after Evita Perón. Given Che's eventual communist views and his reaction upon visiting the Chuquicamata copper mine in Chile, which we will discuss next time, it seems quite odd that he would fall so head over heels in love with someone like Chichina. I have read an article that theorized that some of what radicalized Che on his trip was inspired by the fact that Chichina had broken it off with him right before he left. The article theorized that Che's point of view was inspired by the thought of rebelling against families like Chichina's 
as he might have believed that if not for Chichina's parents, he could have lived happily ever after with her. I do not personally subscribe to that theory, as I think the foundation for the radical Che was laid long before he met Chichina. It seems like it was built by experience rather than heartbreak. Plus, the journey was more of one of self-discovery than radicalization. It helped him find his vocation for helping the less fortunate, but it was Guatemala that made Che a radical. While I do not believe Che was turned into a radical communist because of a girl, I would not be doing my job if I did not make you aware of the theory. We only have a finite amount of information about the relationship, and most of secondhand many years later. Everyone who knew Che and Chichina described the two as infatuated with one another. Che visited her as often as he could, and wrote her many letters. Chichina invited him everywhere she went, and often had him over to the family estate. At first it seemed that her parents took a liking to the bright young future doctor. But remember how I told you that Che had developed a knack for shocking people? That habit did not stop in an attempt to gain affection from his love's parents. He would wear his mismatched shoes and dirty nylon shirt to dinner parties, shocking the sensibilities of the landed elites that the Ferreros would generally host. Che's most egregious error, however, came at a dinner party where the topic of conversation steered towards Sir Winston Churchill. The dinner conversation would have occurred during Churchill's second stint as Prime Minister. A 2002 poll by the BBC saw Churchill win the honor of being named the greatest Briton of all time. Churchill's popularity was just as strong internationally. In fact, in 1963, Churchill became the first person ever to be awarded honorary citizenship in the United States, and he was seen as a living legend and hero in the vast majority of the Western world. If he had supported the Allied cause in the 1940s, and were a conservative in the 1950s, then you absolutely adored everything about Sir Winston Churchill. The Ferreras fell into both of those categories, and consequently loved the British Prime Minister. In the Ferreira household, the Churchill name was spoken with the utmost reverence. The conversation about Winston Churchill that Che ran afoul was not so much of a conversation as it was a chance for each member of the dinner party to share their favorite Winston Churchill anecdote. Imagine a group of well-to-do gentlemen guffawing as one recounts the tale of the famous insult Churchill delivered to Lady Astor, and you would have a pretty good idea of the scene. Che, forever the contrarian, decided to go against the grain and proclaim very loudly that Churchill was nothing but a rat-pack politician. His proclamation sent a stir through the party. Horatio Ferreira, Chichina's father, left the table in disgust, saying, I can't put up with this. Che's reaction was said to have been to smile like a naughty child and return to eating his lemon as Horatio stalked off. From that moment on, Che had lost all support from Chichina's family. The two continued to see each other in secret and to correspond through letters, but without family support, the end was only a matter of time. I assume there were other reasons why the Ferrer family did not approve of Che, but we do not have specific examples. I would assume things such as the age gap between their 16-year-old daughter and the fourth-year medical student probably did not thrill them. Che's lower social station, combined with his father's reputation of being a failed businessman and being mostly out of work for his old life, did not bode well for Che's ability to provide for their daughter in the long term. Finally, Che's combative personality, sense of decorum, and political views made him an embarrassment to be associated with around the Ferreras' other upper-class friends and extended family. The comment about Winston Churchill seems to be the symbolic last straw for the Ferrer family, but Che had first started to lose them when he started talking about marriage far too soon. His plan was to marry the young 16-year-old Chichina and take her on a trip through South America for their honeymoon. Chichina was undecided about marriage and her parents outright against it. Che was no longer welcome on their estate, 
but Chichina at first did not care how her parents felt and continued seeing Shay when she could sneak away. At the end of the school term in December 1950, determined to prove his manliness to the Ferrer family, sate his wanderlust, and make some money, Shay obtained his male nurse credentials from the Ministry of Public Health and took a job as a ship's doctor with Argentina State-run Petroleum Shipping Company. He was able to travel to Brazil, Trinidad and Tobago, Venezuela, and several other countries. He quickly became frustrated, however, because not only did he miss his lady love, but the petroleum tankers spent far less time in port than he had expected. Throughout his summer break, he spent more time on the open sea than he did on dry land. In some ways, that made the plan backfire, as he was unable to do as much exploring as he would have liked, and his relationship with Chichina halted its forward trajectory. Over the next year, Che was back in school with two years left. He had fallen into a period of stagnation that is common with university students not yet ready to graduate. He wanted to progress forward with his career, but he needed a diploma. He wanted to see more of the world, but he was stuck in Buenos Aires with his exams. He wanted to get married and begin the next chapter of his relationship, but Chichina did not share his same vision. So he limped along slowly until Alberto Granado came in to save him. Unlike Che, Alberto was nearly 30 years old and had completed his studies. He was at a point in his life where the way he saw it, he only had one last chance for an adventure. For years, Alberto had talked about leaving town on his motorcycle and traveling to every last piece of South America. He needed someone to go with him, though. When he told Che that he was finally going to set out on his dream trip, Che accepted the invitation to come with on the spot. The two planned the trip carefully, but left plenty of room for improvisation. After the trip had concluded, Che had reflected in his diary that, I'm not the same I was before. Che was about to leave on the trip of a lifetime, and it would forever change his viewpoint on life. Notas de Vieja, translated as either travel notes or notes of a journey, is the account Che wrote about his journey through Latin America with Alberto Granado. He wrote the travel notes as a way to reflect on the trip and to quantify the experience with words. He titled his notes simply Notas de Vieja, and those notes were first published by Verso Books as a memoir in 1995 and given the flashier title, The Motorcycle Diaries. The book went on to become a New York Times bestseller and in 2004 was adapted into the award-winning film of the same name. It has been described as a classic coming-of-age story and was marketed by Verso as Das Capital meets Easy Rider. I do not quite agree that it really counts as a combination of those two, but it certainly was a formative odyssey that helped shape Chase's worldview. A few notes should be made about the nature of using this memoir as source material. First, his memoir was published in 1995, which means it was 18 years after Che died and 43 years after the journey he took place. Second, Che's daughter, Aleda Guevara, has explained that her father had never meant to publish his diary. But Che's widow, Aleda March, felt differently and was the one who published it. In the same vein, we have to wonder what parts might have been changed in order to spread propaganda and grow the cult of personality that Che's image had built. Aleda claims that the diary is authentic and unabridged, but we have no way of actually confirming that. There have been wide rumors and accusations that the Cuban government did not want the memoir to be published. Those accusations may or may not have been true at the time. But in 2003, the Che Guevara Studies Center in Havana also published the book and distributed it throughout Cuba. Fidel Castro has reportedly given his support for the publication of his old friend's memoir. Luckily for us, Alberto Granado was still alive when the books were published and actually worked with the production team of the movie. Granado further published a companion novel to the movie titled Traveling with Che Guevara, 
the making of a revolutionary. So we do get both views in two pieces of primary source documentation for the trip. Obviously there are certain limitations on knowing the exact truth at every turn of the journey, but for all the parts of Che's life we have yet covered, this next part would be the most based in tangible primary sources. Further, as I said last time, this time period is more about getting inside the future revolutionary's head and getting to know the larger-than-life icon on a human level. The final note on our primary sources is that unlike the travel diary we talked about last time, published in Gabara Lynch's memoir, that travel diary was written as the events actually happened. Binotas de Vieja are a little different. Che did keep a daily diary as he journeyed through South America, but by all indications those original entries have been lost. Instead, Notas de Vieja was written after he returned to Argentina. It was written as a way to reflect on his journey and an attempt to reconcile his new thoughts and ideas. As an example, Jay even wrote an introduction to the piece, and the following is a direct quote from the introduction of the diary. This isn't a tale of daring do, nor is it merely some kind of cynical account. It isn't meant to be, at least. It's a chunk of two lives running parallel for a while, with common aspirations and similar dreams. In nine months a man can think a lot of thoughts, from the height of philosophical conjecture to the most abject longing for a bowl of soup, in perfect harmony with the state of his stomach. And if, at the same time, he's a bit of an adventurer, he could have experiences which might interest other people, and his random account would read something like this diary. As we have discussed, Jay liked to write, and he liked to read. Creating something like this was the way that he reflected. It is unknown whether Aleda Guevara was right that Che never meant to publish this account. Che certainly saw himself as an adventuring Don Quixote, but he most certainly likely equally realized that the power of word could also change a person's outlook. He may have wrote this diary in a state of delusion that one day he could publish his account, and it could be the formative text of the next generation of revolutionary. In the end, we cannot know Che's true thoughts about the publication of his diary. Che's diary will never gain the same fame as the diary of a young girl, but it certainly cannot be simply glossed over. Early scholars did not have the text that we have today and chose to ignore this portion of his life in order to focus on Chase's time in Guatemala as the radicalization point. But even Guatemala is often just a footnote before jumping into the more exciting time period after Che met the Castros and became a household name. People often like to focus on the moments of great change and events with wider global impact. We will spend plenty of time on those events we will not forget what came first. Alright, that should do it for the asides. Let us continue with our narrative. On January 4th, 1952, Alberto Granado and Che Guevara set out for their motorcycle journey. In all reality, the motorcycle would break down and they would spend most of the time without it, but it just sounds better to call it a motorcycle journey than hitchhiking and stowaway journey. The famous motorcycle in question was a 500cc Norton motorcycle that belonged to Alberto. He had named it La Poderosa II, or The Powerful II. I have also seen it translated as The Mighty II. The first stop on the journey was actually very nearly their last stop. The two set off for the Atlantic coast of Argentina to the beach resort town of Miramar. Chichina was staying there on holiday, and Che did not want to leave without saying goodbye. Chichina had been against his leaving for an extended trip, and with the tension between Che and her parents, it seemed like his decision to leave could also be the decision that ended their relationship. Che was determined not to allow that to happen. He bought her a puppy as a gift and gave it the English name of Come Back. He felt that if she took the present, then it meant she wanted him to come back, 
and that he could eat his cake by journeying through South America, but could also have his cake by having Chichina wait for him. Unfortunately for Che, he would find out that once you've eaten your cake, you no longer have cake on your plate. The original plan was to stay for only two days, but it stretched to eight days. Alberto was left to worry that his dream trip may be in jeopardy, but he supported his friend's desire to secure his love life before hitting the open road. Alberto waited patiently for Fuser, as Alberto referred to Che at the time. Che eventually decided to go on the trip, but not before he had convinced Chichina to accept to come back as her new pet. He had attempted to procure a keepsake of his own in the form of Chichina's gold bracelet, something to hold close and think of her on any lonely night on the road. Chichina refused to give up the bracelet. She did give him 15 US dollars to buy her a scarf once he reached the United States, which gave Che hope that she would remain his. In the end, though she sent him a letter ending their relationship while he was on the road, Che kept the 15 US dollars throughout the whole trip and bought her a scarf while he was in Miami. There were points in the journey that he had not a penny to his name beyond Chichina's $15, and yet he would not spend it. He shipped her the scarf after he returned home, unable to bring himself to see her again. It is a sweet gesture of his broken heart. It shows how much Chichina meant to him, but, in the end, is only a small footnote of his whole journey. On January 14, 1952, the real journey began. Before we follow Alberto and Che on their trip, I think we have reached a point where we should take a look around the world and assess the current political situation. We will focus on some of the changing politics of the time, primarily the shifting foreign relation trends of the United States and the start of the Cold War. We will then finish with some South American history to set the backdrop of Che's journey. 1952 presents an interesting year in the history of the Cold War. Tensions were nowhere near the point where they would be by the time Che steps into the world scene. Joseph Stalin was still the leader of the Soviet Union and would remain so until his death on March 5, 1953. Harry Truman was the President of the United States and would serve until January 20, 1953. Truman's presidency marked a turning point in the foreign policy of the United States. Prior to World War II, the United States had always dealt with foreign politics and the isolationist methods first proposed by George Washington. Over time, they had certainly expanded from the 13 original states and policies such as the Monroe Doctrine showed that the United States had plans to be the superpower of the Americas, but they had always left Europe and Asia to its own devices. Two world wars, growth in the American industry, and a shrinking of Great Britain's empire showed that the United States was primed to become the superpower of not just the Americas, but the world at large. Truman was determined to place the United States into a place of power, and throughout his presidency, the only real challenger to the United States' predominance over all others was the Soviet Union. Truman dedicated the United States to an internationalist foreign policy and forever banished any thoughts of the United States in isolation to the dustbins of history. Truman helped form the United Nations in 1945 and oversaw the creation of NATO in 1949. Perhaps most impactful for the future of the United States, however, was the Truman Doctrine. The Truman Doctrine was announced to Congress during a speech by Truman on March 12, 1947. Truman told Congress, I believe that it must be the policy of the United States to support free peoples who are resisting attempted subjugation by armed minorities or by outside pressures. I believe that we must assist free peoples to work out their own destinies in their own way. 
Many historians date the start of the Cold War to this speech, and it set the foundation of United States foreign policy until the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991, and in many ways still affects United States foreign policy today. Truman's speech was specifically targeted at the situations in Greece and Turkey, but it set the precedent that would carry into Korea and Vietnam. It also played a large role in how America reacted to Castro, Che, and Cuba. It drastically changed the relationship between the United States and the Soviet Union. Prior to the establishment of the Truman Doctrine, the United States and the Soviet Union enjoyed a period of relaxed tension. After the announcement, the official policy towards communism was containment. The United States would tolerate the previous Soviet gains, but they would fight against the expansion of the Soviets and would dedicate economic and military resources to stop new communist republics from cropping up. Che would witness firsthand the Guatemalan coup of 1954 that was funded by the United States, partially because of the belief that communists had infiltrated the Guatemalan government. In 1952, though, when Che was setting off on his motorcycle tour, the Korean War was the main headline for world politics. I won't be getting into the Korean War, as I think that would distract us a little too much, but it is important to note it. The Korean War was, of course, the first major proxy war of the Cold War. The United States supported South Korea, and the Soviet Union supported the communist regime in North Korea. The Chinese communists, who had come to power in 1949 under Mao Zedong, also supported their communist neighbors. As for the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, I will not be getting deeper into their role today. By the time the Soviets play a significant role in our story, Joseph Stalin will have died and Khrushchev will have risen to power. Between de-Stalinization and other Khrushchev policies, the Soviet Union of 1952 was quite different than the Soviet Union of 1959. I will discuss the Soviets and Mao Zedong's communist rise in the People's Republic of China once they play a more direct role in our story. In the meantime, if you'd like to learn more about the Cold War, I would suggest listening to either or both of these podcasts. The Eastern Border Podcast, which is about the history and daily life in the Soviet Union, or Cam and Ray's Cold War Podcast. I would recommend both, and I will post links to these podcasts on the show's Facebook page in case you want more information. Throughout South America, like much of the world at the time, and similar to what we have discussed in reference to Argentina, the economic system was divided between the haves and the have-nots. Many were living like the Guarani Indians of the Misones province that we discussed in episode 1.2. They were subjugated, and if they could find work, it was menial jobs for lame pay. Many populist politicians rose in this time extolling how they would use leftist principles to make the world a better place for the poor and disenfranchised. Juan Perón of Argentina was seen as one of the more successful in this department by the common people throughout 1952. In fact, Chain Alberta would meet many poor people on their journey, who asked them what it was like to live in the paradise that was the land of Perón, where people were treated equally and paid a living wage. Alberto and Che knew that was nowhere near the reality of Argentina, but they could recognize it was closer to that ideal than the other countries they visited. In South America, the Soviets funded some communist movements, but much like the Americans, the greatest amount of support in this period went toward European and Asian communities. Neither side thought of Latin America as the hotbed for communism, plus it is common to focus on proximity when expanding and focusing around the foe when containing. That isn't to say that attempts were not made for more control. It is just that American business interests were very apparent in Latin America, and those businesses watched for any possibility of nationalization and any rising threats of communism. The problem, of course, was that those big businesses only watched out for their own self-interests. They wanted to enrich themselves and have the populations controlled, 
Even today's world, we see people complain about how the largest corporations are able to control society. In Latin America, this was definitely the truth. I am sure you have heard the term, Banana Republic. Banana Republic, in this case, is not the popular clothing retailer that is owned by Gap. Banana Republic was a term coined by American short story writer O. Henry in his story, Cabbages and Kings. The term refers to a small, unstable nation, generally in Latin America, that depended almost entirely on a single or narrowly focused agrarian product to sustain their economy. An economy so narrowly focused led to a largely stratified society with distinctly identifiable social classes. The largest was the impoverished working class. On top was a business, political, and military elite that of course took advantage of that working class. Some politicians rose up and fought back, and some of them, like Jorge Catan, were summarily assassinated. Or was overthrown by a U.S.-led coup. The poster child for corrupt business elites was the United Fruit Company. The United Fruit Company technically still lives on today as Chiquita Brands International. The United Fruit Company technically lives on today as Chiquita Brands International, but it has been bought out a couple times since 1970, so it has distanced itself a little bit from the ugly past I am going to talk about. Though it should be noted that in 2007, Chiquita Brands did plead guilty to aiding and abetting a terrorist organization in Colombia, one in which they paid the organization to kill union organizers and threaten businesses if they did not sell exclusively to Chiquita Brands. So by no means have they totally cleaned up their act. The United Fruit Company formed as a result of the merger of the Tropical Trading and Transport Company with the Boston Fruit Company. Together they became the United Fruit Company in 1899. From there, they expanded rapidly. By 1930, the United Fruit Company was the largest employer in all of Central America. The company did not stop when they became the largest. Instead, they continued consolidating and buying off their rivals' land one by one in order to form monopolies in the countries they operated in. They have been accused of bribing politicians on countless occasions, and when money did not work to win people over, they resorted to more strong-arm tactics. While many of the examples include various Latin American politicians, there are several examples of American politicians on the take. Perhaps most damning would be Eisenhower's Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles, along with his brother, who was the director of the CIA, Alan Dulles. Human rights of workers meant very little to United Fruit, and in general they preferred to find a way around having to pay taxes. If you can think of a violation that a corrupt company might carry out, the United Fruit Company probably did it. Harkening back to Jorge Gatan, let's flesh out his story as an example. Jorge Gatan was born in Colombia in 1903 and would grow up to be a politician and leader of a populist movement in Colombia. Gatan was from a poor background, but once he entered into formal education, he began to thrive. In 1924, Gatan attained a degree in law before going to Italy to complete his doctorate in jurisprudence from the Royal University of Rome. He returned to Colombia and gained nationwide recognition following a workers' strike in the Magdalena region of Colombia in 1928. Employees of United Fruit had begun protesting and demanding better pay and treatment. Officials and representatives from United Fruit instead painted the workers' strike as a communist uprising with subversive tendency in telegrams to the United States Secretary of State. As a result, the United States government threatened to invade if the Colombian government did not protect the interests of United Fruit. In response, the Colombian government sent the army to end the workers' strike. The troops set up their machine guns and aimed them toward the crowd. After a five-minute countdown, they opened fire. The exact number of casualties has never been confirmed. The general in charge took responsibility for 47 casualties. 
but estimates range as high as 2,000. This incident has become known as either the Santa Marca Massacre, or more commonly, the Banana Massacre. What were the demands of the workers that justified such harsh reprisals? Written contracts, eight-hour workdays, six-day work weeks, and the elimination of food coupons. So really, quite unreasonable. Catan stood up for those massacred. He used his skills as a lawyer to craft an oratory that called for accountability and answers. He slowly won over the public support, and by the elections of 1930, Catan's Liberal Party was able to win a majority and the presidency. He briefly left the Liberal Party, however, when he felt they were not doing enough to work towards equality. He formed the National Leftist Revolution Union in 1933 in order to do more for the working class. His message was very similar to that of Juan Perón. Gatan would never reach the heights of Juan Perón, so it is tough to adequately compare. Gatan did have a habit of dividing Colombia into two social classes. He classified them as the corrupt oligarchy and the admirable people. Though he did not say bourgeois and proletariat, you certainly can see why some might be prone to call him a potential communist. But, funny enough, the official Colombian Communist Party actually routinely criticized Gatan, though that may have been simply because they saw him as a competitor who was having better luck winning over the affection of the masses. He only briefly stayed in his own party, and in 1935, he formally rejoined the Liberal Party. From there, over the next 10 years, he held various positions and offices that included Mayor of Bogota, Minister of National Education, and Minister of Labor, Health, and Social Welfare. During that time, he tried to pass different reforms and policies aimed at improving conditions of the masses. During that time, he tried to pass different reforms and policies aimed at improving conditions for the masses, including urban development, an extension literacy campaign, and various others. In 1945, the Liberal Party was of two minds, those that loved Gatan and those who did not trust him. As a result, the Liberal Party put forth two candidates in the 1946 presidential election, one of which was Gatan. As a result of the split vote, both Liberal candidates lost. The next year, though, Gatan formally became the leader of the Liberal Party. He was widely expected to be the runaway winner of the 1950 presidential election. However, he never made it to the 1950 election. On April 9, 1948, Gatan was assassinated. Sadly, we do not know the full details of the assassination. Some suggest it was the CIA, some suggest it was the Soviets, some suggest it was the Conservative Party of Colombia, and still others suggest it was the Liberal Party of Colombia. The mystery is made deeper by the fact that the supposed assassin was killed the same day by an angry mob before anyone had the chance to question him. I do not want to wade into the murky waters of this assassination on this podcast, but if you are interested, you certainly can look into it, as it is pretty fascinating. The fallout of Gatan's assassination was monumental. Almost ironically, Gatan had always shunned the Marxist idea that revolution had to come through armed insurrection and was instead determined to change the system on the inside through giving people a voice inside the government and encouraging the masses to get out and vote. Gatan's death made the masses feel like that plan was worthless and the only way to create change was violence. Even if violence was not the answer, it certainly was used as one. Immediately after news of Gatan's assassination broke, a riot broke out in Bogota. The riot is now known as Bogotazo, and left much of the downtown of Bogota destroyed. However, the violence did not stop when the 10-hour riot ended. Gatan's assassination sparked a 10-year-long period known as La Violencia, which left over 200,000 people dead and saw the rise of many guerrilla groups throughout Colombia. When Che and Alberto traveled through Colombia in 1952, 
it will be through a country still in the midst of bloody infighting. Fidel Castro, by a strange coincidence, was actually in the city of Bogota during the Bogotazo riots. He had been there as a 21-year-old law student protesting the Ninth International Conference of American States. Castro and his fellow protesters saw the conference as a move to consolidate power in the Americas by the imperialist United States. The conference would result in the signing of the Charter of the Organization of American States, which created the Organization of American States, or OAS, a regional solidarity network that encompasses pretty much all of the countries in North and South America. It was definitely partially aimed at stamping out communism in the Americas, but it also indicated a commitment to general human rights. Fidel Castro actually took up arms during the Bogotazo riots, but he was only saved from arrest when he escaped to the Cuban embassy and gained transport home. It has been theorized that the Bogotazo riots was the event that radicalized Castro and convinced him that working within the system was not possible and that armed insurrection was the only way to fight the injustices he saw in his own country and throughout Latin America. The conspiracy theorists sometimes claim that Castro was there as a low-level Soviet agent who was trying to recruit Gatan into this communist fold. After Gatan refused, it was said that Castro was involved in the assassination of Gatan in order to disrupt the conference and to put an end to a powerful rival. But let's stay out of that rabbit hole. The other countries of Latin America share many of the same pieces of the history we have discussed today. I do not have time to delve deeply into all of them, but in general they face the same struggles that we have discussed in Colombia and in Argentina. Throughout the continent, society was highly stratified, the elites controlled everything, and the poor majority suffered greatly under those elites. Jay will be meeting those poor majority firsthand next time as we discuss his trip through Latin America. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast feed so that you do not miss that discussion. If you want to join the discussion, though, like the show on Facebook and let me know your thoughts. The show should be available on all of the major podcast applications such as iTunes, Acast, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you notice any problems with the feed or would just like to provide me with your feedback, then please email me at oraofgreatnesspodcast at gmail.com. You can also like the show on Facebook in order to receive updates and view various pictures and articles that I have posted about Che. A simple search should reveal the page. Otherwise, go there directly at facebook.com slash oraofgreatnesspodcast. If you want to do me a favor, I sure would appreciate receiving my first iTunes review, but I'll leave that decision to you. Thank you for listening to the Aura of Greatness podcast, episode 1.5, Che, Chichina, Colombia, and the Cold War. Until next time, cheers.